Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, and verses 21 through 22. As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The baptism of Jesus has long been one of the most confusing stories in all of Scripture to me. A story that I have just had this burning question about that leads me to quite a bit of confusion. A few weeks ago, when I looked ahead and saw that the the Sunday I was next scheduled to preach was the second Sunday in January, I immediately thought, oh no, that's the Sunday in the church calendar when we typically look at the story, the baptism of Jesus. I checked the lectionary, which prescribes scriptures for each Sunday, and sure enough, That's what today is. Now, I have a suspicion that had I not chosen this scripture, nobody would have come up to me and said, you know, this Sunday is supposed to be the baptism of Jesus. So, I want to confess to you that I nearly did that. To avoid tackling a story that's been so confusing to me. But in the end, I decided that the better decision would be to commit to preaching on this story, trusting that God would provide deeper insight as to what is going on here. It's also a story that we have to spend time on because all four gospel writers at least make reference to Jesus being baptized. And because of that, we won't just be focusing on Luke's gospel, which we read just a moment ago, but on uh, all of the Gospels, on this story in general of Jesus being baptized by John. Specifically, we're going to look at Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. But I said that all of my confusion comes down to one basic question, right? It's a very basic question. Why? Why was Jesus baptized? Or maybe better put, What happened at his baptism that needed to happen? Why did Jesus feel it was necessary to do this? There are two quick theories that I've heard as attempts to explain why Jesus comes to be baptized. Just to be clear from the beginning, I don't think either of them are wrong. But these are the theories that I've heard people say as to why Jesus was baptized. The first one is a common theory that he was baptized simply to set an example for everyone else to be baptized. 
He was saying, you should do this too. I'm going to do it so you can see how important it is. But if that's the case, then it could be said that Jesus really didn't need to do it and that nothing was actually accomplished by his being baptized. I don't know about you, but I find this explanation extremely unsatisfactory. That maybe Jesus did want to set an example, but that can't be all that's going on in this story. Another explanation is that this begins Jesus' public ministry, something that, that Marilyn made reference to in the children's moment. And it's true. I think we'll see as we move forward in this message that that has merit. But it still leads us to ask the question, why baptism? Why is baptism what is needed to begin his public ministry? So a quick warning. After studying this story for a week, I feel like I have participated in theological gymnastics. It kind of wore me out a little bit. But I hope that in about 20 minutes that I can bring you into this dialogue that I've been having with this story this week, trusting that it has been led by the Spirit. Now, it helps me to know that I'm in good company when I get confused about this story. It's actually one of the events in the Gospels that has caused the most controversy. Early on in church history, debates emerged about the very question we are asking today. What happened when Jesus was baptized? One early proposal is what we now refer to as adoptionism. This is the notion that Jesus was really just a man. But he was so holy that God chose him to become his son. Proponents of this theory believed that it was at Jesus' baptism that God adopted him as his son. Now, two weeks ago, as our act of praise in our worship service, we recited together what we call the Nicene Creed. This creed came from a meeting of early Christian bishops. They gathered together in the year 325, a long time ago. I see some history buffs nodding along. And they got together to discuss a few things, but the big important burning question was, what was the relationship between Jesus and the Father? What is the relationship here? And one of the things they're talking about is this idea that had popped up of adoptionism. Did God make Jesus his son? Now, um, one of the most important functions of the creed that came out of this meeting was to define as well as they could the relationship between father and son. It's been passed down to us uh, over generations and generations and is still to this day the most common expression of Orthodox Christian belief. We said it just a few weeks ago, but I want you to see just part of what we, we read two weeks ago. We said, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, 
begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. Eternally begotten. They came out of this meeting, this group of early church bishops saying, absolutely not to adoptionism. Uh, this statement was written to reject several heresies arising in the church, but one of them was this idea that at Jesus' baptism, he was simply a human being adopted by God. So just to be absolutely clear this morning, we do not believe that Jesus was adopted at his baptism. We believe Jesus has always been the eternal Son of God. This quick look back at church history shows, though, that from the very beginning, this story has been difficult to interpret. One good place to turn when trying to figure out what's going on here is the person doing the baptizing. To take a look briefly at what John the Baptist is doing and saying. In John's words in the Gospel of Matthew, he's making a clear connection between baptism and repentance. Looking at the Gospel of Matthew now in chapter 3, we see these words. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And then a little bit later, John says this about his baptizing. I baptize you with water for repentance. It's clear from John's preaching and from his talking about baptism that he saw baptism as being connected to turning from sinful ways, to repentance, to confession. Yet then comes Jesus, the one who, along with the Council of Nicaea, we affirm to be the eternal Son of God, who was and is without sin. Someone without the need for confession. For repentance. Actually, the confusion about why Jesus comes for baptism goes back farther than the early church fathers. It goes back farther than the Council of Nicaea. John himself didn't understand why Jesus was coming for baptism. Jesus, John is just preaching about baptizing and confessing and the connection between the two. And then Jesus comes. And John says this, or the Gospel of Matthew says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? When Jesus comes to be baptized... John recognizes, from what he understands, Jesus does not need to be baptized. As we've just said, it isn't to become God's son, and it isn't to be cleansed by sin. So what is going on here? Why does Jesus desire baptism? Jesus' response to John is our best place to see an answer to this 
confusing questions surrounding this great story about the purpose of Jesus' baptism. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. And Grace, if you'll just leave that screen up there for a minute, that would be great. Because we're going to look at that phrase, to fulfill all righteousness. Um, This phrase has to be key to understanding what's going on here. Jesus is saying he needs to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. But this phrase is, again, notoriously difficult to interpret. (laughs) What does that even mean? To fulfill all righteousness. We're going to break it down and look at these three words separately before putting them together to see what they mean together. Fulfill. In Jesus' baptism, in some way, he is completing something that has been left undone. Something that has been incomplete and awaiting completion. In the context of first century Judaism, this certainly in some way points back to the story of their ancestors. Something from the covenant in the Old Testament is left incomplete. In our English New Testaments, the words righteousness and justice are actually translated from the same Greek word. While in English we tend to use these words righteousness and justice in quite different ways, when we're referring to God, they're referring to the same thing. They both refer to what God deems to be good. Righteousness, justice in English. In Scripture, when we see that, they're both referring to what God deems to be good. They refer to the way things ought to be in a good creation. So, lastly, this little word all. (laughs) This adjective that's expanding the righteousness being fulfilled to cover everything. It isn't just a part of the good or one aspect of goodness, but the total. To fulfill all righteousness. What a statement. To bring to completion all that God deems to be good. The next thing that we have to do to understand what this phrase means, fulfill all righteousness, is simply to ask what righteousness or goodness had yet to be fulfilled. If Jesus is claiming that in his baptism he is going to fulfill righteousness that was missing or incomplete, then we need to ask what righteousness had not been fulfilled. In my Wednesday evening class, we are um, walking through the New Testament, or a book about the New Testament, uh, in quite a lot of depth. One concept that we learned about recently is what N.T. Wright calls the incorporative 
work of the Messiah. The incorporative work of the Messiah. The idea here is that Jesus, as Israel's Messiah, was accomplishing the purposes for which Israel itself had been called. In himself, he was upholding Israel's end of the covenant. So N.T. Wright says this is evident from the Apostle Paul's teaching. Listen to what Wright uh, writes. Paul insists that the purposes for which the covenant God had called Israel had been accomplished through Jesus precisely as Israel's representative Messiah. He links this to the way Israel would think of their king and how a king represents the people. And what happens to the king and what the king does represents what happens to the people and what the people do. In his baptism, Jesus is entering into the story. The great drama of God and his people. And he chooses to do this by water. Remember that in Jewish culture, the story of God rescuing his people out of Egypt through the waters is more than just a story. It's an identity. They are the people whom God has saved through the waters. This story defines them. In Jesus' baptism, he enters into that drama. But he's doing it not as the one who's bringing the people through the water. He's entering into it as the one going through the water himself. He's entering into the drama. But he's entering into it now playing the part of Israel. He who is without sin is now identifying with sinners. In doing so, he now plays the part of all Israel. It is precisely this incorporative work that is fulfilling all righteousness. And this tracks with the rest of what Jesus does in the New Testament, doesn't it? We often speak in language similar to this when we talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. We say things like Jesus takes on the sin of the world. He pays the penalty for all our sin. His incorporative work doesn't just begin at his crucifixion. It goes back to his baptism when Jesus entered into the drama. That is why it makes sense that Jesus' baptism is said to be the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That is why it makes sense that the gospel writers spend very little time on the story of Jesus before his baptism. And that's why it makes sense that all four gospel writers include this story of Jesus' baptism and their telling of the good news. As Jesus does this, as he passes through the waters and identifies with sinners, the Spirit descends upon him in bodily form, we're told. 
and endows him with all the spiritual gifts needed for his mission here on earth. Even though he now identifies with sinners, he is filled with the Spirit of God. And in this moment, his father reminds him and reveals to us his true identity. Heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved, and with you I am well pleased. Now, here's the part, after all the theological gymnastics, that has meaning for you and me today. Amazingly, in baptism, we too enter into this great drama. We too are a people that God has saved through the waters. But we get to go through this drama knowing that Jesus too was baptized and entered into our part of the covenant to ensure our righteousness is fulfilled in him. Our righteousness is fulfilled in him. We too are given the gift of the Spirit, equipping us to carry out Jesus' ministry here on earth. We too are looked at by God and declared to be his children. And because our righteousness, our goodness, that's broken by sin, because it has been fulfilled by Christ. When he looks at us, he says, with you, I am well pleased. It's precisely because of this incorporative work of Christ that Paul can write in Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Christ has brought us into that incorporative work. Baptized people of God, we have a role to play in this story. Through Christ, our righteousness has been fulfilled. Now we get to participate with him in his kingdom while the drama unfolds. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you. We give thanks to you this morning that you sent your son, that he was born incarnate, that he became one of us, and that in his baptism, he took on all of Israel. In our baptism, we join in and put on Christ. And we give thanks to you that in his work, in what he has done, our righteousness has been fulfilled. Not because of works that we have done, but because of a work that has already been accomplished. And so we pray once again, Father, send your spirit upon us and equip us for ministry. Equip us to go into the world 
and to tell this great story of a God who cares for his people, of a God who brings them into one body and fulfills the goodness that they were created for. Make that be true of us. Make that be true of our community. And help us to proclaim this good news to the world. Amen.